0: Hello, welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. If, way back on New Year's Eve 1999, you told someone that within 20 years, hundreds of thousands of supposedly educated people would reflexively distrust science, reject expertise and ignore material evidence, and refuse even to wear a small paper mask to ward off a pandemic straight out of a science fiction movie, then they'd probably have thought you were crazy. But in 2020, we are where we are, and it is what it is. We're looking at a situation now where fewer than half of the Conservative Party members believe that humans are causing climate change, there is an actual existing flat earth community and according to a recent UCL survey, one in five people say they are unlikely to get a coronavirus vaccine even if it passes medical approval. How did we get here and how can we get back to a reason-based scientific approach to the world's problems? Dr Luke O'Neill is a professor of biochemistry at Trinity College Dublin and one of Ireland's most recognisable voices in science. His new book has the admirably direct title, "Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Science, a scientist's guide to the biggest challenges facing our species today. And he's joining me today. Hello, Luke. How are you? How's it going? <laughs> I'm very well. How's, uh, how's life in the lab in uh, over in Ireland? Are, you, uh, are oh, you staying well and hermetically sealed?
1: We are indeed. It's pretty hectic. My, so my lab is working on COVID-19 as well. So we've got four separate projects running. So it's full steam ahead over here.
0: So, given the, uh, given the workload you're dealing with at the moment, I want to start with an obvious question. Um, why did you want to write the book? I mean, it's, it's a bit of a doorstopper. It's no small undertaking. Are things really that bad that you felt compelled to write it right now?
1: Yeah, well, I'd written a previous book, Justin, it was called Humanology, and it was the science of being human, and that went down quite well in Ireland, especially for some reason. And then they asked me to do another one. And I thought, what will I write about? And this is pre-COVID now, by the way. I wrote them, um, you know, almost a year ago. I began it, and then I figured, uh, why not talk about the science behind really big questions, and then use science to help us? Because obviously, one of my missions as a science communicator, if you will, is to say science is great. So the book, the book's original title was "Science is Great." That bored me to tears; hence, the title change. So, but the motivation was really just to describe the science behind big questions that interest me. And then we began, I began writing it and all the various topics began to emerge. Didn't expect COVID to hit. I mean, I submitted the book back in January before COVID had really struck, you know, and then suddenly COVID is with us. And I guess it's become all the more relevant because of COVID-19.
0: Was there uh, some frantic rewriting and last minute editing before the manuscript went off the stone then?
1: (laughs) I'd say it was COVIDized, if that's the (laughs) right word. (laughs) Well, it became very clear that COVID could inform Many chapters, like the vaccine chapter, for example, was a no-brainer. You know the bullshit jobs one as well, and then we had our friend in the White House uh, spouting nonsense. You see, so so it became very timely then to include COVID into the various chapters. I, I didn't want to have a whole ch- chapter on COVID because you never know. Just when people are sick of COVID by now, probably you know So it didn't want to overegg the pudding either. But it was very easy to include COVID as an example to illustrate some of the points I was trying to make.
0: So sticking on COVID as a subject, there, how is professional life for someone in your field for a scientist like yourself is covid and i'm choosing my words carefully here is it an opportunity dare one say it enjoyable
1: well it was amazing for me i'm an immunologist so obviously i was very well aware of viruses and i've worked on some of them before and then I work on the inflammatory process, which is this thing that happens in your body when you get injured, you know, and COVID-19 is effectively an inflammatory disease. So it was very easy for my lab to start working on this. We could we could sort of um, divert some of our projects into COVID very straightforwardly. And then back in January, I was at a conference in Rotterdam on viruses and the immune system. And the world expert on SARS was there. And he said to me, there's a new virus, you know, and I said, yeah, I've heard about it. He said, this is going to be trouble. So in other words, many, many immunologists have galvanized, I guess, to work on this huge, big problem. So it wasn't, it wasn't anyway contrived or difficult. And in fact, one of the things we're working on, we have a molecule that's anti-inflammatory, a natural molecule. And now we've shown it might work against COVID-19. So it, I think the other thing to say is it became a hugely important thing for my lab because people want to make a difference. You know, I mean, what else could you work on these days except COVID? So, so it became straightforward, really, to work on that, on that particular aspect.
0: When you're working on the book, what did you start thinking were the most urgent misconceptions that we're facing about scientific evidence and the scientific method of all the the problems that you tackle from sort of chapter to chapter? Did you feel some were more pressing than others?
1: Yeah, the va- vaccine one, obviously. That, I Remember, I wrote that pre-COVID because we already were worried about vaccine hesitancy anyway. So that was number one. Number two was climate change, clearly. I mean, as we all know, that is the next big crisis that's coming towards us. It was debated hugely before COVID. You know, it's on the agenda for many different governments the whole time. So so I felt let's lay out the case as to why climate change is a problem and why human activity is causing it and just lay out the science behind climate change. And then, of course, we have the, 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 the youth movement, let's call it that, uh, are doing a fantastic job at raising awareness. So so I thought those were the two big ones to really highlight.
0: And when we look at how we sort of get our heads around problems and how, as the public, how we understand these things. How much of our problems that we have in public health and science do you think lie in the gap between the ambiguity that you as scientists deal in and then the certainty that politicians and the public expect?
1: Yeah, that's a very important question. So scientists are always arguing with each other. You know, science is a very rigorous process that gets to the truth. And what that means is your discovery has to be reproduced by a different lab. I'm only ever happy when another lab in America or Japan or somewhere reproduces my studies here, because that means it's true, you see. So science is a superb uh, pursuit in many ways, because its only goal is the truth and reproducibility. And then when you get to the conclusions, then you can say, look, this is is true. Now, we don't want to get into the philosophical (laughs) bit about, you know data and, and uh, you know, ep- 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 epistemology, whatever that's called, that makes it a bit tricky. But certainly you can't beat strong data that's reproducible. Now, the trouble is, if you lift, pull back the curtain, it's like the Wizard of Oz, and you see scientists bickering, the general public don't want that. They, they want us to say, look, we've made a discovery. This is the way it is, you see. And by and large, that's the case with science. Mostly we do get to discoveries that are true. You rarely see major discoveries being wrong. It happens from time to time. So that creates a bit of a problem then with science communication, and especially with the COVID crisis, because it's changing week by week. In other words, science is a process and we're still in the middle of it in a way. Now, the the, the bottom line has to be though, as I say in the book, you you have to reach a bottom line. The public want scientists to make a clear statement as clear as possible. And the more data the scientist has, the more confident the scientists will be in that bottom line. And then that gives rise to our next problem, which is we don't have enough data about COVID. Hence the toing and froing and the opinions. Science should never be an opinion. It should be a conclusion drawn from data. In other words, the earth is round. That's not an opinion. You know, that's a scientific fact. And the dream of all scientists is to discover something that becomes a scientific fact. And that's where science should always be headed. With complicated questions, though, it can be hard to reach that definitive proof. And then, as we all know, I mean, the example I give in the opening section is the tobacco industry. And how it fought the, a campaign against smoking causing cancer. You know, that was egregious, you see. And then eventually, the evidence is 100% compelling. Smoking causes cancer. And then what happens? The tobacco industry backs off. So in other words, once the data becomes a roar, you can't deny it. You know, and the goal of all science is to be roaring this information. This is it. This is the data. This is what we're concluding from this. But as, as I've just, if you just asked me, it's a process. And there can be a bit of contradiction and a bit of debate going on in the background. And that that kind of nerve politicians, the general public. There's um, one of the things that
0: I thought was most interesting in the book is that a huge number of sort of received assumptions get turned over in every chapter. I mean, there's one where you point out, for example, that there's actually no proof that exercise boosts serotonin to fight depression, which you know I think most people just think is a kind of settled fact. Um, what did you discover during the writing of the book which surprised you the most?
1: I kind of knew To be honest, that chapter on depression is a really good one. Because, you know, there's limited evidence that you're depressed because a given set of neurotransmitters are different in your brain. There's also limited evidence that drugs will correct those neurotransmitters. There is some evidence for this, but it's not that compelling, you know. So of all the things we think about, the diseases of the mind, if you like, or the, uh, you know, the more neurological things, it's amazing how little we know. And and when I dug into that topic, even I got a bit surprised that the neuroscientists hadn't done more. And in fact, the, the area of neurochemistry has been neglected, really. The chemical basis for, you know, how the brain works has been neglected. So that was one that struck me as uh, once I dug into it, that was a bit uh, sort of uh, a bit disappointing. You might start needing more work is a better way to put it. The other big one for me was the, the men and women one and uh, how, how limited. Uh, well, first of all, how crappy some of the science was comparing men and women. And then secondly, you know, the more science that's done there, the less differences we find especially with things like mathematical ability or all the received wisdom about men being better than this at certain things compared to women, a lot of that was nonsense. And the bottom line in that chapter is very simple. Hardly anything separates us apart from the obvious things, of course, you know, but all these traits that we thought were male versus female are actually either cultural or based on upbringing rather than being hardwired. And that was a real eye opener in a way, you know.
0: That chapter also felt like a very good illustration of how once a oversimplified idea takes root, it can be very difficult to shift. Because I think you, know, you make the point that the public, a lot of the public mind is essentially still locked in that men are from Mars, women are from Venus mindset of them being two totally disparate groups. And as you point out, there's actually, you know, very, very little sort of yeah. in there. Um there. Is that a case where almost like a little knowledge can be quite dangerous and that often some of the most dogmatic wrong-headed people are the ones who pride themselves on having done the learning and done their own research.
1: Yeah exactly and I think in that topic we're all got huge baggage you see yeah and even the scientists brought huge baggage to these questions and then the results were sometimes misinterpreted or it wasn't done properly and when you're in the realm of psychology it can be very difficult to get to a definitive answer because it's based on people filling in questionnaires, say, you know, which is a you know, difficult thing to get a, a good answer from. So I think it's a really interesting one to think about. As I say, as time has gone on, some of those early papers were rubbish and they couldn't be reproduced, getting back to this notion that it's about actually getting to something robust in the end, you see. So I think it's a really good example of how bias crept in. Unconscious bias was part of those studies as well. But the good news is it's getting better and scientists are addressing these questions in a much more empirical way that's much more reliable.
0: Do you think with the stereotype that scientists are often regarded as, you know, they're sort of lab-bound, you know, sort of quiet, a bit more inward-looking, you know, sort of the opposite of yourself, really, um, has this been a problem with science particularly that, say, compared to the arts, a lot of science is most interesting practitioners have often not been the best people at conveying what they do to the public.
1: Yeah, and that's fine, by the way. I mean, not every scientist has to be a communicator. Your your prime directive, let's go to Star Trek immediately, is to be an outstanding scientist. Now, what that means is really rigorous, get stuck in, do the experiments properly, come up with a hypothesis. That's not science communication. That's a separate thing. And very often the best scientists are hopeless at communicating which is okay you know a certain percent of scientists can communicate and it's very important that some of us do it just to get the information out there i feel you see so that's the first thing i would say you don't need to be a great communicator to be a great scientist in fact some would say if you're a good communicator that counts against you as a scientist you see so it does take a bit of guts to get up there and do this i'll tell you because because you're you know the, the professional rivalry would be to put the boot in i did i was quite happy to see one of the reviews of never mind the bollocks, I said, well done, Luke, loads of endnotes, you know, <laughs> so that was good, and I made sure of that, there's rigorous science behind what I'm trying to say here, you see, but you're right, that the stereotype of the uh, the Jerry Lee Lewis book-toothed, uh, glass-wearing scientist persists, let's put it that way, you <laughs> see, <laughs> which is okay, I don't mind, you know, but I think it's really important, of course, that we communicate science, because two reasons for that, one is, it's the taxpayer are paying us, so therefore, the taxpayer should hear about it. That's the first thing, right? It's an obligation to tell them because they're paying our wages off, and you know either through, you know, university structures or whatever it might be. Uh, secondly, it's to, in a democratic society; these are very important questions. You've got to make the people scientifically literate to, to vote on climate change. Like, if your local MP is a climate change denier, you shouldn't vote for him, possibly, but you should certainly be uh, be able to look at the issues and be able to get an opinion yourself on these things based on science. So scientific literacy is a really important part of education. Like, we train people to be scientists in school, not to make them into scientists. It's to make them literate, to be able to address really important questions for our society. So any any country that doesn't, doesn't educate children up to a certain age in science is making a huge mistake, I think. So, so it's all about communication, really, in that sense.
0: So when you're talking there about how science ends up bleeding over into politics. If we step back a bit and look at kind of the bigger picture globally, the corollary of what you're saying seems to be that anti-science seems to be working for demagogues as a very specific tactic. You know, Trump gets away with blaming the Californian fires on exploding trees. Bolsonaro, you know, was famously sort of dismissive of all the science around COVID until, I mean, I think actually even after he caught it. And until recently, politicians who were climate uh, deniers got on tv because of a kind of perceived uh need for balance do you hold out much hope that this wave of kind of anti-science populists will be found out eventually because you know you can't outrun events and the facts on the ground
1: it's very hard i, I think it has to start with education for definite so you've got to make sure there's a strong scientific basis for education i'm not saying the human everything's important of course i wouldn't say that at the expense of the humanities either. But you can't beat a good rounded education from a young age, probably up to the age of 15 or 16 would be ideal. And now they can call out those politicians and go, look, what he's saying about hydroxychloroquine or bleach is rubbish, you know, and they've got more confidence to do that. So I think it starts with education. And then when you move on from that, it is a complete mystery to me how, you know, some politicians who are allegedly very intelligent come out with the nonsense they come out with when clearly the science behind these things is so strong. Now, that must mean there's a vested interest there. There's a bias, you know. I mean, I mean, there was a shocking study, I think, last week, said that if you're, a right, if you're, if you're towards the right end of the spectrum, only one in five of those people believe what scientists say, whereas if you're more left-leaning, if it was six out of ten are, are inclined to trust scientists. Now, why is that? Science is science. You know, it's, it's factual. It's based on data. And yet there is this strange dichotomy there isn't there which is a striking thing and the worry would be it'll get worse now we we don't want to go back to the days of when we're burning all the books you see (laughs) or whatever you know and uh and and not allowing people to be heard i mean that's where this might go it's a big worry and science must be heard then as as a voice of reason remember the essence of science is to be reasonable so in other words here's the data what's your response if you're reasonable you go yep that looks good to me. If you're unreasonably, I'm denying that. That can't be true. Masks cause asthma or whatever it is, you know. So, so it's all about reason at the end. And that's why the Royal Society was founded in 1660, remember, was to bring reason into the debate. So it is really about someone who's being reasonable. A good, a good quote I heard a few years ago was, one of the purposes of a good education isn't so much to train people to work in an economy it's to make them reasonable. You know, that's the purpose of an education in many ways. And then let's hope that that continues because it is all about being reasonable, I think. With, uh, with
0: Ireland, uh, particularly in your own sort of local environment there, you mentioned that there's something of a sort of higher level of general kind of scientific and kind of cultural literacy there than in many countries. But are you also getting the kind of counter to that? Is there a vocal anti-science movement is there a sort of anti-mask movement developing
1: there as we've had in the uk well again my 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 statement on ireland being scientifically literate is is an anecdote (laughs) i'd love to see empirical as a scientist (laughs) i'd say let's show me me, working let's get the evidence i do it as a fact though they did they do science here up to the age of 15 and that must help them i'm hoping that's the case anyway and in my own personal experience there's a massive appetite for it you know and the dialogues I have with people. Like, I walk down the street now, I'm in, I'm in the unenviable position of being recognized now. I used to be on the radio, and i have been on the TV a bit. I will get people come up to me having scientific conversations. It's amazing, you know. And in the email, so it's, it's anecdotal. Let's hope it's true. Now, absolutely, of course there is. There was a protest in Dublin on Saturday by the anti-maskers. They walked down Grafton Street. They were shouting at people wearing masks, get that mask off, you know. Now, again, that feeds into this thing of I'm not wearing a mask. It's my right, as I said, not to wear a mask, you know, and that is true. Of course, it is. We're, in a, we're, not, we're not living in a police state, are we? Uh, and all you can do is say, look, there's really good evidence for mask wearing now. And you give them the evidence and I can lay out four or five scientifically validated facts that would suggest mask wearing is stopping the spread of the virus. They can still deny that if they choose to, as I just said already, people think the moonshot was filmed at the back of a lot in Hollywood, for God's sake. There's there's no convincing some people, no what you do. But the trouble is if their action is harming others, then that's a different matter. You know, then you've got to consider other ways then to to maybe um You know, sort of prevent, not prevented, but certainly limited and and make it clear to people that you're harming other people by your actions. So in Ireland, we do have it. I don't think it's as common as in other countries, but we're lucky in Ireland. There's never been much of a far right here for whatever reason. We've escaped some of that, it seems, compared to other countries. But that seems to be changing. We are seeing hundreds of people on the streets now protesting against masks and protesting against vaccines and the usual things. It's the same list of issues that occur in other countries, you know? I was going to say, given that the as you say, the weight of
0: scientific evidence that is with you and your side of the argument, do you think that is it actually anything scientific that's motivating these people or can be used to argue against them? Or is it something more either psychological or political is the point that they're making rather than actually wanting to argue in good faith about the science?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's very complicated. There could be different motivations. There wouldn't be just one. Fear is a motivating factor for this. In other words, I'm frightened. My reaction is I don't want that. You know. Yeah. But it starts with that kind of a kind of a sense of fear. The second thing is something might have happened in their lives that makes them hate the government, you know, and now they, they latch on to this issue as a way to get a dig in at the government. That's the second thing. You know, some are just Mavericks. Now remember, some, we love Mavericks as scientists. Often science moves forward because someone challenges the dogma. And that's okay, but you gotta show me the evidence and you gotta make the evidence you know, as absolutely compelling. And then maybe I would change my mind on this. And with the mask issue, there is some evidence out there against masks. Of course there is. What happens then is with something like this, you can't do a double-blind placebo-controlled trial with masks, you see. Mm -hmm. 10,000 wear masks, 10,000 don't. See what happens. That's not possible during a pandemic. It's very hard to do. So in other words, you end up in that situation there with a consensus view. And scientists come to a consensus on something based on all the evidence as they see it and the evidence against, they weigh it up, and their bottom line is X. And then you end up with a consensus. And then, But there'll still be someone saying, ah, yeah, but there's a 1% chance you're wrong, you know? Yeah. So again, you're, you're kind of appealing again to people's reason sense of reason with this one, I mean. On
0: a sort of more hopeful note, as we wrap up, there's um, despite that noisy fringe, the recent poll by the Open Knowledge Foundation actually found 64% of voters over here were now more likely to listen to scientific advice. Uh, and I think only 5% were saying they were less likely. So. On balance, given everything we've discussed today, are you broadly optimistic about things?
1: I am. I am optimistic. And I think, to be honest, COVID-19 is a great opportunity to tell people how great science is. We've never had anything like this, let's face it, have we? The key goal, of course, is that science will save us. We know the only way out of this is through science. That's that's for definite, you know. And that means the vaccine, it means therapeutics, it means very elaborate testing and tracing and isolating. That's the only way we're going to beat this virus. So if ever there was a sort of a, a way to illustrate the power of science as COVID-19, that's the first thing. And then secondly, the buried topics we've been discussing, what is science? How does it help us? How do we use it? You know, you can illustrate that again perfectly through the lens of COVID-19. So the people in the street... They're becoming immunologists, amazingly. You know, they're learning the vocabulary. They're discussing some of the finer points of the immune system. That's superb. That's a great development. Now, some of them still won't go with it. They'll contradict you. They'll argue with you. But as long as we get enough of them, realizing how important science is and the scientific process, that is the benefit society as a whole down the line, I think.
0: And just finally, you talk in your conclusion where you're sort of casting forwards about where all this may be going um you talk about the imaginative power of science fiction and you talk about how companies like arup and google are employing speculative fiction writers to plan for future scenarios and future eventualities I just want to ask what's your own personal favorite work of science fiction
1: well it's got to be star trek you would have picked it up in that chapter you know? An amazing i wrote the book i had a mini sabbatical there before christmas Sort of a November, December time over in San Francisco. I've got a good collaborator in Stanford. And I was able to write the book when I was a bit of peace and quiet. I could write the book in the evening and stuff. There's a channel over there, 24 hours a day, Star Trek. Can you believe it? If you're a Trekkie, you're in heaven. Every series is on repeat, almost all the movies. That was in the background as I wrote the book. It was a great inspiration. And I've always loved Star Trek, of course, and The Next Generation in particular. is superb, I think. And then I was making the point, I mean, I, again, I would have read about this from others. It wasn't the original idea. But some of those science fiction pieces actually were about the present anyway. You know, they were raising concerns from today. Uh, and what was a fascination for me was the stuff that Star Trek got right. It predicted various things, including you could even say mobile phones, iPads, you know, diagnostics in various ways. I mean, we're almost there with the replicator. The 3D printer is kind of heading in that direction, you see. So, And then, as you've said, I mean, the big corporations want to guess the next big thing. They've got a 5, 10, 15-year timeline. So they employ you might call them futurologists to predict the next part of what's going to happen for us as a species. And of course, isn't that wonderful that we can think ahead in that way? And then also hopefully think positively ahead and think that the world may well be a better place because of science. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world like Star Trek with the Federation, for instance, you know? So so who knows, some of those science fiction things may come true.
0: On that optimistic note, uh, Luke O'Neill, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. Never mind the bollocks, here's the science, is available now. Don't forget, there's a new Bunker every Monday to Friday. The team will be here with a full panel roundtable tomorrow, and that's Wednesday. And if you've got time to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts, that would be a great help. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily... It's a Podmasters production.